This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Starslayer, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how story arcs fall. Today we're going to be talking about The Warlord, 22 and 23, Starslayer, number 6, John Sable, 15, and Green Arrow, 15 and 16. And to celebrate the recent release of The Legend of Tarzan in theaters, we're going to cover Tarzan and the Gods of Opar by Mike Grell. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there, along with occasional photos and news updates. If you ever have a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He's always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. And speaking of conventions, we were able to pick up a few signed items when we attended Heroes Con, where Mike Grell was a guest. And later in the episode, we'll be announcing the winners of those items, so stick around for that. If you're unable to see Mike Grell at a convention but would like to get an original drawing, you can contact Scott Cress of Catskill Comics. He's the official representative of Mike Grell for commissions. Scott is always friendly and helpful. So check out the CatskillComics.com link in our show notes. We certainly enjoy sharing listener feedback, and all of the conversations with listeners on social media are fun. Feel free to write anytime and let us know your thoughts about the show, and share your opinions about any of Mike Grell's titles. I'm interested in knowing what others think of Mike Grell's work, and would love to know who you think are the best characters, and which stories are your favorite. We'll give our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy this show, please consider checking out our other podcasts. Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the excellent sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. And Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, also known as Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by Mark Schultz. We'll include links to those other podcasts in our show notes as well. Tarzan and the Gods of Opar is a 24-page story written and illustrated by Mike Grell. It was published in Dark Horse Presents, issues 8, 9, and 10 in 2015. The story takes place sometime after the events of the novel Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar, written by Edgar Rice Burroughs in 1916. Colors are by Jeremy Colwell, and letters are by Tom Orzhakowski. Our friend Clinton Robson invited us to cover the story for his excellent Coffee and Comics blog. We'll share our thoughts about the issue here, but we'll also include a link to that blog post where you can check out some great Mike Grell art from the issue. And while you're there, you can check out some of Clinton's other excellent posts. On Lake 
Victoria in Africa, a ship cruises along the shoreline where elephants are grazing in the distance. From the deck of the ship, Sir Richard, Miss Elizabeth Parker, and their safari guide Wilson are watching the elephants with binoculars as they discuss plans for the hunt. Sir Richard is keen to track down and shoot Bomani, the largest elephant known in the land. They plan to use a hydrogen balloon to spot the direction of the herd and then make their way by land to find the prize elephant. Overhearing their plans, a tall and distinguished-looking man wearing an expensive Savile Row suit comments that it is not a fair chase. He then guarantees them that there will not be an elephant within 50 miles of them by tomorrow. As the tall man walks away, Sir Richard and Wilson are told his name is Lord Greystoke. Miss Parker follows Lord Greystoke and attempts to apologize for Sir Richard's and Wilson's rudeness. She explains she is Sir Richard's biographer, documenting his hunting expeditions. She is quite unhappy in this role, but has no money for a ticket home. The next day, Sir Richard and Wilson ride up in their hydrogen balloon as planned, even though a storm is approaching. They've anchored the balloon in place, and they know they just need to gain enough altitude to find the elephant herd. But they are shocked to find that just as Lord Greystoke promised, there are no elephants in sight in any direction. Watching from the ground, Elizabeth Parker is shocked to see the balloon break free from its tether, and in the storm it is quickly blown away toward the mountains. Fifty miles away, a man is riding the giant elephant Bomani. While he might be known as Lord Greystoke by some, here in the jungle he is known by the name Tarzan of the Apes. He spots the balloon flying fast across the sky, propelled by the winds of the storm. He is instantly concerned because they are headed over the mountains of the moon into the uncharted lands. There, Tarzan knows there is the lost city of Opar. Whether he likes the men or not, he knows he must try to rescue them. In the balloon, Sir Richard and Wilson are finally able to gain control as the winds subside. They spot the city in the mountains and descend in the hopes of finding a guide to take them back. As they land, they realize the city is ancient and are greedily excited to see gold domes on many of the buildings. Just then, a group of primitive men rush them with clubs in hand. Wilson shoots one of the men with a gun, and Sir Richard shoots a flare gun into the chest of another, and the man bursts into flames. The other men drop their clubs and bow down to the new gods of Opar. Swinging through the trees on vines, Tarzan finally sees the city of Opar in the distance. It is late at night, and he is surprised to see a woman sneaking outside of the city wall just as a huge panther leaps toward her. Tarzan swings down and jumps on the back of the panther with knife in hand and saves the woman. Her name is Una, and he asks her why she is outside the safety of the city walls at night, and she tells him about the new gods. One of them wants her, but she wants nothing to do with him, so she is trying to escape in the dark. With this new information, Tarzan makes his way into the city. He hides in the upper window of the Great Hall where he listens in on a conversation between Sir Richard and Wilson. They are freely speaking in front of Law, the priestess of Opar, since she doesn't know English. They are amazed at all of the gold and jewels in the city. They plan to leave in the balloon with all they can carry, and then return with well-armed men to capture the city and take all of the treasure. Tarzan surprises them when he jumps from the window. They quickly recognize him as Lord Greystoke, but are shocked to learn he is also the legendary Lord of the Apes. Tarzan turns toward Law and begins speaking in her language. Tarzan then turns and tells the men that this was once an outpost for the ancient city of Atlantis. It was populated by tall and beautiful priestesses and strong and sturdy miners, who were there to dig for gold and jewels that would be delivered to Atlantis once a year. 
but that was all long ago before the city of Atlantis disappeared into the sea. Tarzan tells Sir Richard and Wilson that they should follow him quickly and leave behind all the treasure if they value their lives, but they have no plans to listen, and when Tarzan turns to leave, Sir Richard hits him on the head with a gold scepter. Days later, the district commissioner tells Elizabeth Parker the search for the lost men has been called off and that she should book passage back to England, but she explains that she has no money and walks sadly away. Back in the lost city of Opar, Sir Richard and Wilson are preparing their balloon for departure, and they have loaded the basket with some gold. Tarzan's hands are bound by ropes, and he is being led to the altar near the balloon where the priestess law plans to sacrifice him. Sir Richard is there making a speech to the crowd gathered around the balloon, even though they can't understand a word he is saying. He is even arrogantly telling them of his plans to return and take all of the treasure. As they pass by, Law asks Tarzan what is being said. As he translates, Una, the woman he saved outside the city wall, overhears him, and she secretly hands Tarzan a knife while Law is distracted. Tarzan calls out to Wilson to explain that, due to the extra weight of the gold, they will need to drop a lot of extra ballast to get the balloon off the ground. Seeing that Sir Richard is already in the basket, Tarzan knows that he has already thought of that fact. Wilson turns to find Sir Richard has a rifle pointed at him, but Wilson is quick and grabs the rifle and uses the stock to knock Sir Richard out of the basket. His face is covered in blood when he hits the ground, and the gathered crowd now know they are no gods. Wilson pulls the release lever to drop the ballast, and the balloon begins to float into the sky. Tarzan uses the knife to cut free from his ropes. He knocks his guards out of the way and grabs the satchel from Sir Richard and leaps into a tree. Wilson begins shooting at him with a rifle as Tarzan pulls the flare gun from the satchel and fires. The flame hits the hydrogen-filled balloon and it bursts into flames. As Tarzan leaves, Priestess Law decides she will now use Sir Richard as her sacrifice. Back at the shore of Lake Victoria, a satchel is delivered to Elizabeth Parker. It includes a note from Lord Greystoke that simply says, Go home. And inside is a giant red ruby cut into the shape of a heart. We're longtime fans of Tarzan, and Tarzan by Mike Grell is a bonus. This is a great action-adventure story complete with wild animals, jungle scenes, danger, and the bad guys get what they deserve in the end. The art is gorgeous throughout, with dynamic layouts and lush scenery, and the period clothing and details are excellent. The pacing of the story is excellent as well, and the cliffhangers used to divide the story into three chapters are exciting. Jeremy Colwell's colors are outstanding as usual. He is one of our favorite colorists, and here he helps create the wonderful atmosphere and tone of the book. Jeremy occasionally does colors for Ron Randall for his excellent sci-fi action series, Trekker, featuring bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair that we talk about on our podcast, Trekker Talk. The scene of Tarzan riding the elephant with the herd in the background and the balloon being blown across the sky in the distance is terrific. I really love the perspective on that page. And the scene of Tarzan swinging through the jungle is also stunning. The figure is drawn in a way that easily conveys his strength and the fast movement. And there are several dramatic splash pages, including the page of Tarzan tackling the panther. That page has a great classic feel to it. Mike Grell uses a clever technique on the last page, where he uses the view of the heart-shaped ruby in Miss Parker's hand to overlay the bloody heart of Sir Richard being held by the priestess law in the final panel. A truly excellent adventure that should satisfy any fan of Tarzan or action comics in general. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. 
These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them... Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like... Wonder Woman! Dr. David Banner. And let's not forget about the non-superheroes, such as... Swamp Thing! Captain William Buck Rogers. And many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Star Slayer, The Director's Cut, Issue 6, September 1995. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters by Steve Haney. Colors, Rob Pryor. Editor, Mike Gold. On Callisto, an ice-covered moon orbiting Jupiter, two figures speed across the surface on skis. It is Tamara and Torin with Sam resting on his shoulder. As they crest the top of a mountain of ice, they look down upon dilapidated buildings half-covered in snow and ice. It's the Lost Colony, all that remains of the buildings from the Jupiter expedition that was destroyed by a meteorite shower. Tamara tells Torin that the only survivors were the children who were deep underground in the nursery facility. With the aid of robots and computers, the children survived, but without adult supervision to guide them, they patterned their lives after the tales of seafaring Vikings and books they found. Tamara says it will be difficult, but somehow they have to convince them to turn over their amulet of power. Suddenly, the ice outcrop collapses beneath Torin's feet and he tumbles into the valley below. He later wakes to find he is a prisoner being forced to work in the underground caverns to dig out large stones to aid in building a giant temple to the Norse god Odin. That night, the Callisto Vikings revel in celebration in their giant dining hall as Torin rests in a dark corner. Suddenly, the door to the hall swings open and frigid air blows in, followed by the ghostly apparition of a Valkyrie that floats into the room. The ghostly figure says, Hell, children of Odin, I bring greetings from Asgard. She tells them Odin is pleased with their labor and has seats for all of them in Valhalla. As a token, Odin wants the amulet their leader wears as a symbol of fealty. Torin realizes the ghost is in fact Tamara just as Sam appears beside him. It's all thanks to some phosphorescent glitter and an anti-gravity belt. The Viking leader gladly removes his amulet and hands it to Tamara, but there is a malfunction in the gravity belt and the Vikings realize they've been tricked. Torin, Tamara, and Sam race from the hall with Vikings on their heels, but things go from bad to worse when a giant ship flies into view and begins to fire a barrage of laser blasts. It is the flagship of the Titan battle fleet from the moon of Saturn. Sam quickly flies away toward the Bow Spirit shuttle, but Torin and Tamara find themselves trapped along with the Vikings who were their pursuers only moments earlier. Kraxor, Lord of Titan, flies into view riding on a giant flying disc. He declares himself ruler by conquest and demands their royal medallion to add to those he has already gathered from his conquests of the outer planets. Tamara looks on in disbelief as she realizes he is wearing three of the amulets of power, but Kraxor in turn notices that Tamara is wearing the amulets from Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. He grabs the amulets from her neck but has no time to celebrate as a laser blast rips through his chest. It is Sam, firing the guns from the Bow Spirit shuttle. Torin and Tamara grab the amulets from the dead body of Kraxor, and as they race toward the shuttle, they call out for the Vikings to join them in battling the Titan invaders. 
Their Viking-styled ships and the bowsprit are all much smaller, but they outnumber the invaders and buzz around the giant flagship like bees, and after several well-placed shots from Torin, the flagship from Titan explodes. The bowsprit heads back toward the Jolly Roger, and Tamara tells Torin it is time to go to Earth. The cover features the ghostly figure of Tamara disguised as a Valkyrie. I really enjoyed the opening pages of Torin and Tamara skiing across the surface of Callisto, followed by the story of the children growing up and modeling their society after the Viking stories in their books. The whole setup has a great sense of adventure, and it's all truly fun. The sequence with the sparkling image of Tamara floating in disguise as a Valkyrie is great. I didn't recognize Tamara at first, and was just as surprised as Torin at the turn of events. I particularly love the flying Viking ships. Just like the Jolly Roger, it creates a real sense of fun to have traditional sailing ships sailing through the stars. Being able to collect three additional amulets from the invaders from Titan really moves the story forward quickly toward its end. It left me wondering if Mike Grell found out he would be leaving the book sooner than originally planned, but he wanted to finish up the initial storyline he had envisioned. As with every issue of Star Slayer, the colors are great throughout, and this issue was full of swashbuckling sci-fi adventure. It's highly recommended. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Dorn. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVersusTheMartians.com. John Sable Freelance, 15, Green Hill, August 1984. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Janice Chang. Colors, Janice Cohn. Editor, Mike Gold. John Sable and Mike's roommate, Gray, are leaving the theater following a performance of Romeo and Juliet by Mishka and Anastasia Yurkovic, who John helped to defect to the West in the previous issue. As the two are walking, they come across a gang of young men hanging out on a corner with a boombox. John Sable's defenses kick in, and he expects a fight, but Gray tells him to let him handle it and Sable looks on in surprise as Gray and one of the gang members have a friendly dance competition on the street. Back at home, Sable receives a message and proceeds to the American Museum of Natural History, where Dr. Stephanie Elizabeth Maxwell asks him to lead her into the Nicaraguan jungles. That would be very dangerous given the difficult political situation in the area, and Sable wonders what could be so important to warrant such a dangerous expedition. Dr. Maxwell shows him a gold disc she found in an Aztec dig near Mexico City, but the artifact is of Incan origin, suggesting there was contact between the Aztecs and the Incas. Days later, the two are deep in the Nicaraguan jungle, searching along the riverbank in a boat that Sable was able to acquire, and using a map that Dr. Maxwell created from her notes. Following a close encounter with a ground patrol, Sable and Dr. Maxwell move inland and climb a steep, rocky mountain. Just as the two crest the top of the cliff, 
a military helicopter comes into view and begins firing on them. Sable quickly leads Dr. Maxwell into the jungle, giving them some protection. The foliage hides them from the helicopter, and the dense jungle prevents it from landing. But it won't buy them much time, because the helicopter will certainly radio the ground patrol they saw earlier. Dr. Maxwell's map leads them to a stone pyramid deep in the jungle. The two climb to the top, and then make their way down into the center of the pyramid. There they find a pedestal, where the disc Dr. Maxwell discovered near Mexico City fits perfectly. They need sunlight, but a flashlight will suffice as it reflects off of the disc and points to a passage that the two follow. Dr. Maxwell is well studied and leads the two of them through a series of booby traps deep into a tomb where they are amazed to find a mummified Viking with a sword and shield. Dr. Maxwell pulls out a camera and begins to take a series of photos. Meanwhile, the ground patrol has found the temple as well and makes their way down into the dark passages. One by one, the men fall prey to the many booby traps until only one remains, who triggers a wall to collapse, releasing an underground river into the temple. Sable hears the rumble and has just enough time to warn Dr. Maxwell before the rushing water hits them and carries them through a series of underground passages, dumping them into the main river. Dr. Maxwell is devastated at the destruction of all of the evidence, but is then relieved to see that Sable was able to hang on to the sword in all of the rushing water. Sometime later, John Sable and Dr. Maxwell are attending a reception at the museum to unveil the sword, and as our story ends, the museum curator introduces Sable to someone he already knows, Lady Margaret, who John Sable knows as Maggie the Cat. The cover features Sable and Dr. Maxwell on top of the pyramid as a helicopter fires upon them. I enjoy the opening scene that connected the issue to the previous story, and it was nice to see Sable and Gray out together again. They make a fun combination of two very different people. The dance competition at the end of that sequence features a fun montage. The story is pure pulp entertainment, which means it is filled with adventure and is tons of fun. Mike Grell must have been playing around with a theory that does exist about contact among Vikings, Aztecs, and Incas. The scenes along the river are stunning, and the action is fast-paced. The exploration of the pyramid and all of the booby traps plays out like a fun movie serial. An excellent issue all around, and the tease of Maggie the Cat at the end sets up the next adventure. Plus, it was a great coincidence that both the Star Slayer issue and the John Sable issue both featured Vikings as a plot device. Good fun. And coincidentally, we were also talking about Vikings in our latest episode of Trekker Talk, where we cover Thor and Loki in the Land of Giants by Jeff Lemke and Ron Randall. So which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Ant-Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, <laughs> Doc Samson. Who's he? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The Warlord, issue 22, The Beast in the Tower, June 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Todd Klein. Editor, Jack C. Harris. 
Following the events of the previous issue, when Tara, Mashiste, and Mariah all refused to follow Morgan any further, we find Morgan drinking his sorrows away at a tavern, when an elderly man approaches him and tells him he has a destiny to fulfill. Leaving the tavern, Morgan is attacked by a group of men who take him as an easy mark in his drunken stupor, but the warlord is no easy target and fights back, taking down two of the men. But with his back turned, a third man raises his sword, prepared to kill Morgan, when the bolt from a crossbow hits his would-be assailant in the back. Morgan turns to see a beautiful woman holding a crossbow, but when he approaches her, she runs away. Morgan pulls the arrow from the body of his attacker and is amazed to see it is made of silver. Morgan pursues her only to see her captured by a group of guards who carry her into a tall tower and lock the door behind them. Morgan pulls out his 44 Magnum and shoots the lock and the door swings open. Stepping inside, he is amazed to see the tower appears to be bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. But before he has time to consider further, he is attacked by a giant serpent. Morgan stabs his sword deep into the serpent, but it only seems to anger it as its jaws prepare to clamp down on Morgan. He desperately grabs a torch from the wall and thrusts it into the serpent's jaws, killing it. Morgan rushes to the top of the tower and through a door only to find himself face to face with a werewolf. The creature is powerful and quickly overtakes Morgan. Pinned to the floor, Morgan braces himself when he remembers the silver arrow he pulled from the dead body on the street. He plunges the arrow through the werewolf, killing it. But as it drops to the ground, it transforms into the body of the beautiful woman who only moments earlier saved his life. Hearing a voice behind him, Morgan turns to see the elderly man from the tavern, who thanks Morgan for freeing his daughter from her curse. Flames suddenly begin to engulf the tower, and the old man tells Morgan his destiny is not yet fulfilled, and with a wave of the old man's hand, Morgan finds himself standing on the street staring up at the burning tower. The cover features an image of Morgan on the spiral staircase of the tower. He is off balance and the werewolf is leaping toward him. And I have to state the obvious, that since the tower was bigger on the inside than on the outside, it just might have been a TARDIS with its chameleon circuit engaged. I particularly liked pages 6 and 7, which is when Morgan first sees his rescuer and then he follows after her. There are dramatic close-ups of their eyes staring at each other, and several of the panels feature characters or objects leaning to the right, visually propelling the story forward. The entrance of our female archer is dramatic, and for a moment I wondered if she might be a new semi-regular character that I didn't remember. But Mike Grell surprised me completely. It is amazing that the characters of the elderly man and his daughter are introduced and killed in just a single issue, and yet we still care for them in only the matter of a few pages. Great writing indeed. The Warlord, Issue 23, The Children of Ball, July 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Morgan is continuing his lonely wandering around the world of Scataris. Stopping to bathe in a river, he hears voices and laughter in the distance and looks to see a group of young men and women frolicking in the water. They all have blonde hair and bronze skin and are wearing togas. Suddenly, a group of green-skinned, beast-like men attack the group in the river, and the warlord leaps to their defense. Swords and axes clang together, and as the group of young men and women look on indifferently, Morgan manages to defeat all of the attackers. As he drags himself from the bloody river, he demands to know why they didn't try to fight back themselves, and the only reply he receives from the group is, Peace, be still. Following the battle... 
the group of beautiful young men and women lead Morgan back to their settlement, which is little more than an open-air gazebo or pavilion. Arne, who is one of the young men, tells Morgan the attackers were the Orm. Arne explains to Morgan that they do not fight back because they have no weapons and no training and the Orm are too strong. Morgan challenges them to learn to fight and to go into battle with him against the Orm. One of the young women agrees with him and takes him into a tunnel that leads to the underground home of the Orm. As the two of them make their way through the tunnels, they begin to see bright light ahead. As they come out of the tunnel, Morgan is surprised to see advanced-looking buildings and an orb atop a tall tower that emanates light throughout the underground city. Morgan assumes it is as he's seen many times in Skataris, a once-advanced civilization that has declined into the savagery of the Orm. Morgan uses his forty-four Magnum to destroy the control panel for the giant sun-like orb, and the city plunges into darkness. The young woman leads Morgan back through the tunnel, and as he comes out into the sunlight, he is hit over the head. Morgan wakes to find he is tied to an altar as the children of Baal dance around him. He is to be their sacrifice to Baal, along with the orm he killed earlier that day. But suddenly spears fly through the air, and the children of Baal fall dead to the ground one after another. A group of orm walk into the clearing, and one comes to talk to Morgan, and he realizes he aided the wrong group. The beautiful children of Baal were the real monsters here, while the beast-like Orm are kind and attack the children of Baal only in retaliation for an earlier attack. The Orm free Morgan and tell him to stay away from their land. The cover shows Morgan tied to an altar. Skulls encircle the post he is lashed to, and flames surround him. I continue to love the way advanced civilizations and deteriorated societies coexist in Skataris and Mike Grell continues to use those elements to good effect, to tell engaging stories, and make insightful comments about society. Just as in this case, Morgan assumes the beautiful young blonde-haired youth are in need of protection, while the green-skinned, beast-like Orm must be the enemy. My favorite panel is at the bottom of page 12, as Morgan and the young woman who accompanied him rushed through the tunnel after he destroyed the control panel in the underground city. Several elements of the story remind me of the Star Trek episode, The Apple, that featured a group of young people who worshipped Val, spelled with a V, which looked like a giant skull carved into the side of a mountain. In this issue, we meet the children of Val, spelled with a B, and there is a giant skull carved into the side of the mountain near the altar at the end of the story. Also, the children of Val use the Vulcan salute when they say, Peace, be still. There are many differences between the two stories, but just enough similarities that it seemed Mike Grell might have been doing an homage to that particular episode of Star Trek. And of course, in the other issue we covered, there was a suggestion of a TARDIS from Doctor Who, so maybe Mike Grell was paying tribute to a couple of classic science fiction shows. Hi, I'm Nicholas Prom, the host of Comic Reflections, a podcast devoted to Silver and Bronze Age comics. Join me and my spunky sidekicks Jeff Barnhart, the crusty curmudgeon from Dogpatch USA, and Spencer Valadez, podcasting's very own Apache Chief, as we discuss the grooviest comic books of yesteryear. You'll find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at comicreflections.wordpress.com. What are you waiting for? Green Arrow, Issue 15, Seattle and Die, Part 1, February 1989. Writer, Mike Grell. Pencils, Ed Hannigan. Inks, Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Laquament. Associate Editor, Brian Augustin. Editor, Mike Gold. 
It's raining outside, but inside, Oliver and Dinah are enjoying a night at the Bop House, a trendy blues nightclub in Seattle. A man sits nearby at the bar, drinking glass after glass of whiskey. A car pulls up outside, and three men in long trench coats get out into the rain. As they walk toward the door, one of them pulls a rifle out from under his coat and hits the doorman in the head, knocking him to the ground. The three men enter the club, pull out their guns, and tell the guests to put their money on the tables. There goes our evening out, says Oliver, as he picks up a glass ashtray from the table and throws it like a frisbee directly into the mouth of one of the men, breaking several of his teeth in the process. Dinah spins and knees the gunman nearest to her as Oliver leaps over the table preparing to kick the third man. Suddenly a gunshot rings out and one of the gunmen's head explodes in blood. Shots continue and soon the other two gunmen also lay dead on the floor. The man who is sitting quietly alone at the bar stands with a smoking gun in his hand. Oliver and Dinah begin to protest, but the man just says, Somebody was going to get killed here. Better them, don't you think? As he takes another drink of whiskey. Oliver and Dinah turn when they hear police sirens, and when they turn back, the man is gone. An empty glass sits on the bar with a matchbook beside it. Lieutenant Cameron is very unhappy, and Oliver and Dinah find themselves being questioned for hours. He gets even more upset the next day when he sees the drawing of the gunman based on Oliver's description. It looks exactly like Richard Nixon. As they leave, Dinah wants to know why Oliver gave them a wrong description, and he says, There are two sides to every story, and I'd like to hear this from him. Oliver pulls out a matchbook from the Triangle Hotel that he picked up from the bar before the police arrived the night before. Later, Oliver knocks on the door of room 3C at the Triangle Hotel and announces he has a delivery. The man from the nightclub quickly exits through the window onto the fire escape. But Oliver isn't fooled and is waiting for him on the roof and offers him a bottle of whiskey in exchange for a conversation. Back in room 3C, the two toast and Oliver is introduced to Archie Leach. It isn't his real name, but it's the one he's currently using. Oliver notices a photo on the nightstand of Archie with a beautiful blonde woman. The two circle the topic before finally beginning to debate whether killing is necessary. But when Oliver mentions the woman in the photo, Archie throws him out. Oliver drives away in the Sherwood Floors van as two other men enter the Triangle Hotel. Moments later, in his rearview mirror, Oliver sees an explosion coming from the Triangle Hotel. The cover is by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano and features an image of Archie in the foreground with his gun pointed directly at the reader. Oliver is in the background with his bow while vultures circle all around. In addition to the cover, there are dream sequences within the story. When Archie sleeps, he dreams of vultures circling overhead. Archie uses the names of characters from old movies as his many aliases, but Oliver must be a movie buff because he finds him right away. This issue is filled with great nighttime scenes. Most pages are drenched in purple, dark blue, dark red, or orange. Along with the rain, it all creates a dark and somber mood for this story. The golden page with a bright sun and vultures circling overhead is creepy and effective. A favorite sequence is when Archie climbs up the fire escape, but we see the green arrow and shadow on the rooftop already waiting for him. And now, it's time to find out what happens next. Green Arrow, Issue 16, Seattle and Die, Part 2, March 1989. Writer Mike Grell, pencils Ed Hannigan, inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin, letters John Costanza, colors Julia Lackamit, associate editor Brian Augustin, editor Mike Gold. The story picks up with the explosion from the previous issue. Oliver stares back toward the hotel with a shocked expression on his face. 
But Archie has escaped the two men the same way he tried to escape from Oliver. He was up the fire escape and on the roof before the explosion. The two men chase after him, but Archie makes an incredible leap to the elevated highway across from the hotel. One of the two men pulls out a gun to shoot Archie, but an arrow flies through the air, hitting the window frame behind him. The two men turn to see the green arrow with another arrow ready in his bow and aimed at them. The green arrow demands to know who they are and why they're trying to kill Archie. They explain they weren't trying to kill him. It was a concussion grenade designed to stun him. They're agents Gavin and Daryl with the Australian Secret Intelligence Organization, and they're here to take Archie back to put him on trial for murder. Back at Sherwood Florist, the two agents begin to tell Archie's story. His real name is Jake Moses, and he is a former long jump champion from America, which explains the incredible jump he made from the roof of the hotel. He married beautiful fashion model Allison Garner, and the two went on a photo safari in Africa for their honeymoon. But when the two and their guide stumbled onto a group of poachers, Allison and the guide were killed, and Jake was left for dead. Picking up their guide's rifle, Jake managed to stumble to the local ranger station, only to find the poachers who had killed his wife being paid by government officials for the rhino horns they collected. In a rage, Jake killed all of the poachers and the government officials. Following that, he became a mercenary for hire, no matter how dangerous the job, and was in much demand despite being drunk most of the time. Then came the tragedy. Off the coast of Tasmania, he bombed an Iranian ship that was loaded with munitions, but what he didn't know was that an environmental research ship called the Rainbow Guardian was docked nearby, and the intensity of the explosion destroyed that ship as well, killing 37 innocent civilians, most of them students. Oliver tells the agents he'll help them find Moses. Oliver thinks Moses wants to be caught because he keeps leaving a trail. It's another rainy night, but Oliver has found him again. Moses runs up the fire escape to the rooftop, but the Green Arrow and the two agents are waiting for him. Oliver tries to talk him into surrendering, but Oliver's anger boils to the surface, and he tells Moses his wife wouldn't like what he's done with his life since her death. He's become as bad as the men who killed her. Moses turns to look at the gaping distance to the next building. Oliver tells him he'll never make the jump. But Moses ignores him and runs forward and leaps into the darkness and the rain. There's an excellent cover by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano that shows a postcard about visiting beautiful Seattle lying in a puddle of water. It is splattered with blood, and in the reflection of the water, we see an image of the green arrow holding his bow. For fans of John Sable, this story is even more poignant because the comparisons to Mike Grell's John Sable character are clear. Jake Moses is what John Sable could have become if he hadn't pulled himself together and found a purpose in his life following his wife's death. It's all very sad. The issue starts off at a fast pace with the explosion, Jake's leap, and Oliver's confrontation with the Australian agents. As with the previous issues, the subdued and dark colors coupled with the constant rain establish the mood for the story. There's a great full-page montage of Oliver searching for Moses the second time that nicely establishes the passage of time. One of my favorite panels is on the roof near the end of the story as lightning streaks across a red sky as the buildings below are shadowed in dark blue. The leap from the roof on the final page leaves us all wondering, did he make it? Oliver didn't think he could. A leap of faith or a leap of desperation? Will we ever find out the answer?
Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate every comment we receive. They add so much to the show. So a big thank you to everyone who took the time to write in or to get in touch through social media. We recently had the opportunity to join podcast great Michael Bailey to record a segment for an upcoming episode of his excellent show, Views from the Long Box. He has an ambitious plan to cover all of the issues of the DC crossover event Legends this fall, and two of the issues of The Warlord are part of that 22-issue crossover series, and we were honored to be invited to be on his show to discuss those issues. We're looking forward to hearing all of the other segments when these episodes are released later this fall. Thanks for having us on your show, Michael. And a big thank you to Ange for sending us all four issues of the Green Arrow miniseries from 1983, all signed by artist Trevor Von Eden. Wow, Ange, that was a wonderful gift. The previous episode featured our coverage of Heroes Con and our interview with Mike Grell, so we didn't get a chance to cover feedback in that episode. So we have feedback to cover from both episodes 7 and 8 this time. So let's get started. Zeb Oswalt wrote in about episode 7 saying, Cool podcast as always. The Warlord comic was great, as well as Green Arrow. I haven't read Star Slayer, but it sounds cool. Sable was great as well. Clinton Robson of the Coffee and Comics blog was excited about our contest and wrote, I hope this contest gets you to even more exposure. Those podcasts of yours are some of the most amazing things out there. Thanks, Clinton. Lee Garvin wrote in to say, Warlord was one of my all-time favorite comic series growing up. And then he went on to share that he wasn't a fan of the attempted reboot in 2006. That was the general consensus of most fans. Thankfully, they brought Mike Grell back in 2009 and 2010 for the 35th anniversary of the series to pick up on his continuity, which ignored the reboot. As we make our way through the series, we plan to skip the reboot as well. Greg Arujo, who runs the excellent comic book ad page on Facebook, shared a great full-page ad for the line of Warlord action figures, and Joe Crawford replied to the post saying he used to have the Travis Morgan figure. Jeff Nettleton regularly shares his opinions and insightful observations that we always enjoy reading, and he had some great comments about Episode 7. First, he said, Green Arrow stories highlight what set Grell apart from many writers of his era. He takes the better part of an issue to deal with the everyday life of his characters. Regarding Star Slayer, he commented Grell was having fun with his world of the future, with starships designed like pirate schooners complete with solar cells to Bedouin peoples on Mars. Grell gets to mix a bit of Errol Flynn with some Rudolph Valentino or Peter O'Toole while adding a touch of bogey. And Jeff shared a personal memory about the Warlord. In Episode 7, we covered one of the earliest issues of Warlord he bought. He explained, Living in the country, one of the ways I got comics was via the Whitman sampler bags with three comics in them. For a time, our local grocery store carried a bunch of those. Two Warlord issues I got this way were number 10 and number 21. The first was a great little battle against a monster, but the latter was something more and really made me want to get more Warlord comics. The story is really gripping as Travis Morgan is forced to fight his own child. It dealt with a lot of issues that were well beyond what I saw in most comics, and the little scene at the end had me wanting to see more. The other thing that I notice is Mike Grell is growing as a writer. Early issues are filled with homages and ideas from other sources, like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Hollywood and Italian sword and sandal adventure films. Over time, though, his confidence grows, and his stories become more and more complex. By the time he has moved on to Star Slayer, John Sable, and back to Green Arrow, you see how far he has come as a writer. Jeff then commented on John Sable, saying, It was a nice, upbeat follow-up to M.I.A., and let's Grell dabble in the worlds of James Bond and Harry Palmer. What's truly amazing in this classic story of espionage and thrills, as Sable works to free a dissident, is that he took time out to capture a ballet. 
This series was drenched in hard-boiled atmosphere, yet art and beauty were well represented. Grail refuses to let his world be complete darkness and corruption. Now on to feedback from Episode 8 that featured our HeroesCon coverage. Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning reader wrote, Great episode. Really enjoyed all of the interviews. Comic origin stories are the best. By the way, I really love Rob Kelly's book, Hey Kids, Comics. Thank you, Joe, for your initial questions that kicked off our quest to do that interview episode. And yes, we love Rob's book, too. It's filled with true-life stories from individuals about the impact of comics on their lives. And it is available from Amazon, and there's a wonderful audiobook version as well. Mark Sweeney of the blog and podcast I'm the Gun let us know how happy he was for us to get the opportunity to interview Mike Grell. BC Fan 101 complimented the last episode and let us know that Dinah is a favorite, especially when drawn by Mike Grell. I agree completely. Jeff Messer gave us a kind shout-out on the Geek Brain podcast about our meetup at Heroes Con. The origin of our friendship is actually linked to Mike Grell. That's how we got connected. We first saw Jeff moderate a panel with Mike Grell and Steve Rude at the Asheville Comic Expo. He's a great interviewer, and if you haven't already, be sure to check out his past interviews with Mike Grell. We're sure you'll enjoy them. Speaking of interviews, we were also happy to see that DC in the 80s posted the second half of their great interview with Mike Grell. The questions were really good. You'll get to enjoy more of Mike's stories and learn more about his work over the years. Be sure to look for a link to that in our show notes. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network commented on the last episode, saying, The Mike Grill inclusion was very fun. Kind of you to allow me in, even though I didn't make it to Heroes Con. Seriously, we were thrilled to have you on the show, Professor Allen. Mike Lane of Comics in the Golden Age said, On your advice, I purchased and just finished the first volume of Bombshells. Really enjoyed it. And now I'm really envious of Ruth getting Marguerite Bennett's signature at Heroes Con. Thanks for the recommendation. And we'll just say, Mike, she was very nice, so we hope you get a chance to meet her in the future. Mike Grell let us know that he saw the Tarzan movie and liked it a lot, and he thought it was a pretty good sequel to Greystoke. We loved it, too, and highly recommend seeing it at the theater if you can. By the way, Mike Grell has a motto I thought I would share. It is, life is drawing without an eraser. That's a cool saying, and very true. Thanks to Tony Greenall for all of the shout-outs and kind words he puts out on Twitter for us. He did a promo for us recently saying, Comic book fans should be all over this, and included a Mike Grell sketch of the Warlord wearing his feathered helmet and a link to our show. Thanks, Tony. You may have noticed that Tony enjoys hearing our shows at night. This time, he said, I'm listening to the Warlord World's Mike Grell episode before bed. I will be waking up at night to the sound of arrows. Of course, I think he may be used to hearing arrows since he lives near Sherwood Forest. And he has another claim to fame because Diana Rigg from The Avengers is from his town. And Tony let us know that he heard Mike Grell the other week on the Word Balloon podcast. That podcast features many great interviews and we'll include a link to the Mike Grell episode in our show notes. Karen Williams of Between the Pages says, Great episode. Love the interviews with friends of the podcast and the interview with Mike Grell. I really like the story about Warlord, Atlas Comics, and Carmine Infantino. Thanks, Karen. Glad you enjoyed it. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl wrote in while listening to the episode saying, Fantastic episode and I've not even reached the Grell chat yet. And later he followed up to say, Love the Carmine Infantino story. Oh, dear. Later we saw a tweet where Martin told Dan Jurgens about our interview episode. Thanks, Martin. Bill Beard just started listening to Warlord Worlds recently. He sent us some encouraging notes and fun gifs. Later he said, Great Mike Grell interview, and told his friends if you're a fan, you can't miss it. Bill is one of the hosts of the fun Too Old, Too New podcast, where they cover two old comics and two new comics each episode. Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets podcast also let us know he enjoyed the interview with Mike Grell and our other guests. 
He did a nice promo for that episode as well. Edward Davison shared his appreciation of Mike Grell moving Green Arrow to Seattle and drawing him with an earthy feel. And BC Fan 101 chimed in to say the hood introduced by Grell is terrific. Black Canary fans should definitely be following BC Fan 101 on Twitter. Geek to Me Radio said, I met Mike Grell at Wizard World two years ago and he was delightful. Love his Green Arrow. John Baker let us know that his mom loves swashbucklers, Flynn, Rathbone, etc. We watched together, so I gravitated toward Conan, Warlord, and Cole. Thanks for sharing that fond memory with us, John, and I think your mom has great taste. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog wrote and said he is several issues into the Warlord Showcase, and he is liking it a lot. The art is crazy good, and stories are old-school fun. Then about nine issues in, he checked in to say it is so much fun, weird and wild. Glad you're enjoying it, Ange. Ange also tweeted a photo of an old news item that mentioned Mike Grell and Mark Ryan were seen talking with Mike Gold, and there was speculation that they were working on a project. Darren replied, wondering if it was the annual they did together, and he tagged Mark Ryan. Mark was kind enough to reply, saying it was actually the Pilgrim with Comic Mix, but they only got three books in before the recession halted the series. Of course, Mark Ryan played Nazir in the excellent TV series Robin of Sherwood, and if you would like to hear an interview with Mark Ryan, check out episode 99 of Jeff Messer's Geek Brain Podcast. Both Ange and John Baker posted to us on Twitter with pictures of some great finds in the bargain boxes at their local comic stores, including issues of John Sable and The Warlord. Ange even managed to find John Sable issue number one in a quarter bin, which got him a seal of approval tweet from Professor Allen. Jeff Nettleton sent us a terrific letter about our Heroes Con interview episode, and we want to share some highlights. He wrote, I did Heroes Con in 1992 and greatly enjoyed it. It had a nice homey atmosphere. I used to drive up to Charlotte at least once a month to shop at the main hero store, and it was always a treasure trove, and everyone who worked there was friendly and professional. It was fun to hear other people's first encounters with Mike Grell. To me, he has always been there, crafting great stories and maintaining a link to classic illustration. When I see young artists talk about their inspirations, they are usually comic book artists from the generation before. The ones I grew up with had their comic book heroes, but more of them had inspirations from the heyday of the adventure comic strips, as well as the great book illustrators and fine artists. When I'd read interviews with Grell, he'd talk about Foster and Caniff, as well as Maxfield Parrish, Howard Pyle, and N.C. Wythe. I have always loved those great illustrators. As a kid visiting the bookmobile every week, I was introduced to a lot of great illustrators. He went on to say, My all-time favorite picture book is The King with Six Friends by Jay Williams. It set me up perfectly for comic books. Those picture book illustrators led me to the adventure book illustrators and then to the comic strips and comic books. As a result, I have a real affinity for the more illustrative comic artists, like Mike Grell, Gray Morrow, Alan Weiss, Tom Yates, Steve Rude, Mark Schultz, Alex Toth, Dan Spiegel, and Mike Kaluta. I was glad to hear that Mike's Tarzan comic strip work is being reprinted, and we are too, Jeff. I'm also glad to hear we have more John Sable to look forward to in the future and the possibility of seeing John and Maggie the Cat in cinematic form. Maggie the Cat is a character I love and would want to see her done right, as is true of the rest of the Sable's cast. In regards to the question you asked about what you'd most like to see for Mike Grell, I would say more Maggie the Cat solo stories. He did two issues at Image, and it sounded like more had been intended. Maggie was always a great character, and I love caper films and stories and wanted more of that. The interview was fun, and my only wish is that Mike would have talked a bit more about his work to assistant Dale Messick, creator of Brenda Starr. Well, Jeff, be sure to look out for the interview Mike did with Back Issue Magazine while at Heroes Con. He talked about that very subject during the interview, and hopefully his comments will be included in the issue. 
Alan Wright, the webmaster of Robin Hood, Bold Outlaw of Barnsdale and Sherwood, shared a photo of a Robin Hood bookshelf that he has at home. He made a nice puzzle of it by taking a before and after picture so people could spot all of the differences. There were lots of fun comments from several fans. Alan heard how much I love Robin McKinley's Outlaws of Sherwood and shared a link to an interview he did with her. I'll put that in the show notes. The interview is excellent. He asked great questions and she gave very thorough responses. It was a treat to read. And that segues perfectly into our iTunes review section because Alan left us a review on the Canadian iTunes site using the appropriate name, Bold Robin. He said, Great podcast covering the career of a premier comics writer and artist. It's fun to revisit Grell's Green Arrow run. Darren and Ruth are delightful hosts, introducing me to Mike Grell's other comics. And hopping across the pond for another great iTunes review, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous titled his review, Holy Grell. And we love that witty title, Martin. Warlord, Green Arrow, Star Slayer, John Sable Freelance, and more. Writer-artist Mike Grell has earned his reputation as one of the best all-round storytellers in comics, and the charming Ruth and Darren do him justice in this always engaging podcast. Whether you're a longtime fan or interested in investigating his oeuvre, this is the podcast for you, with views, reviews, and interviews. It's a good day to be a listener. And back in the U.S., Brian Mulvey wrote, If you are a diehard Mike Grell fan, this is your podcast. The husband and wife team of Darren and Ruth do a synopsis of issues of Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, and Green Arrow. They propel the listener at breakneck speed through issues of these fan favorites, but have the ability to describe action panels and pages succinctly to the listener. From their excellent interaction with each other to involving listeners with feedback and contests, they fire on all cylinders with each podcast. Give Warlord Worlds a listen. You won't regret it. Their latest episode contains a fabulous interview with Iron Mike himself. They produce two other great podcasts devoted to Mark Schultz's Xenozoic Xenophiles and Ron Randall's Trekker, aptly titled Trekker Talk. Jay, a.k.a. FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold podcast, wrote, Fabulous, fantastic show. Darren and Ruth have a passion for the creations of Mike Grell and its shows. Whether they are discussing an old issue of Green Arrow, Warlord, or John Sable, their love of Grell's world shows in every episode. Before listening to this show, I'd never read a page of John Sable or Green Arrow, but after just one episode, I hit the dollar bin at my local comic book shop and was not disappointed. Thanks, Warlord Worlds. A big thank you to Alan, Martin, Brian, Jay, and everyone who has left iTunes reviews in the past. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. If we happen to miss a name, please let us know and we'll include it next time. And please forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just let us know and we'd be happy to correct that next episode as well. Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com Andrew in Belfast Ange from the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog Ashford from Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast BC Fan 101 Bill Beer of Too Old and Too New Brett Weston Brian Mulvey Bronze Age Babies Captain Marvel 75 Chris Mounts, writer Christopher Mills, be sure to check out his blog at atomicpulp.blogspot.com. Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris. Corey Hodgden, David Fiore, DC in the 80s, DM Elms, Diabolu Frank of the Idlehead of Diabolu Martian Manhunter blog, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology from Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, Dr. Staines, Ed Terry and Nick Moore of Till Productions. Edward Davidson, 
Eric Mannix of Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages, the Fire and Water Podcast Network, FKA Jason of the Silver and Gold Podcast, Gary Woolard, Geek to Me Radio, Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes and Anime Freaks, Greg Arujo of the Comic Book Ad Facebook page, Gus Sabalios of the Mike Grell Facebook page, Hank Sarton, J. David Weeder of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Jeff Messer of Geek Brain Podcast, Jeff Nettleton, Joe Crawford of the blog for the non-discerning reader, John Baker, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Keith Hedrick, Kyle Benning of King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, Kyle Schultz, Lee Garvin, Mark Sweeney from the blog and podcast I'm the Gun, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous blog, author Micah Harris, Mike Barrett, Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections, Paul Carroll, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly from the Film and Water Podcast, Rob Lance, Robert Wolfman Bratcher, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ruth Reese, Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnet, Secret Origins, and many other podcasts, Seth Howard of the Too Old, Too New Podcast, Shag Matthews of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, The Shazam Cast, Shepard, Stella of Batgirl to Oracle, Sterling Collins, Steve Rogers, Tim Wallace of Cord Industries Blue Beetle Blog, Tony Greenall, and Zeb Oswalt. It's time to announce the winners of our contest. Those of you who listened to the last episode know that we were able to see Mike Grell at Heroes Con, and he even took time out of his busy schedule to do an interview with us. And as we hoped, we picked up a few signed items from him, and we're going to have a drawing to give away prizes to those of you who have submitted iTunes reviews. At this time, we have iTunes reviews from Ryan Daly, Woody C., Ed Moore, West Coast Gus, Jeff Messer, Clinton Robson, Joe Crawford, Rob Kelly, The Irredeemable Shag, Paul Hicks, Bold Robin, a.k.a. Alan Wright, Brian Mulvey, Martin Gray, and Jay, a.k.a. FKA Jason. We have a couple of Warlord trades, a couple of John Sable trades, and a couple of Green Arrow trades. All in all, we have seven signed items. So, that means there's a 50-50 chance. Good luck to everyone. And the winners are Martin Gray, FKA Jason, West Coast Gus, Paul Hicks, Clinton Robson, Woody C., and Alan Wright. A big congratulations to all of our winners. For those of you who won, please reach out to us at warlordworlds at gmail.com with your mailing addresses, and we'll get those items to you in the post. We sincerely thank all of you for taking the time to submit those iTunes reviews, because they help bring more attention to the podcast. And we encourage anyone listening to please consider leaving an iTunes review. I'm sure we'll get another chance to see Mike Grell in the future, and if we do, we'll try to pick up a couple of extra items and have another contest. Before we go, we'll provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr under the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I know it's a good way to help the show be noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And you never know, you might win a prize in the future. You may also enjoy our other podcasts. Trek or Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. 
All three are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Mm-hmm.